We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Eric Capelli. Tonight, I want to talk to you about two separate churches. The main theme of these churches, and the reason why I want to contrast them, you know, one against the other one, really has to do with the fact that they are both dealing with the same issue, except it outs itself in a different way. And so the main thing that both churches are dealing with all has to do with the word pressure. Yeah? And I think that we all know what pressure looks like and feels like. I know in the English language when we talk about pressure, that's a little bit of a different concept. You know, now that I'm on the soccer field with my kids, in the Dutch language when you want your children kind of to get aggressive with soccer, you use the Dutch word aanval, which is attack. And so I had to be careful in the United States, standing along the sidelines of not saying, attack, attack, attack. What they say is pressure, pressure. And that is kind of this idea of everyone getting close to the person that's carrying the ball so that they get that intimidation. And both of these churches are dealing with that. They are dealing with pressure, and it is showing itself in intimidation. The main thing that I like to focus on in the midst of that has to do with the quote that's up every single week, and if we could run that quote, that would be great. And it says, The church, no matter how powerless in a given society, is a guardian of its culture. Just as the presence of the righteous in Sodom was the only factor that could have restrained judgment, the fate of a culture may depend ultimately on the behavior of believers in that culture. So no matter what you experience, what kind, it doesn't matter what kind of pressure it is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter if you are the Christian majority or the Christian minority, whether that's in your family, at your work, or wherever you are. You are meant as a believer to be the influencer in that place. God has you there for a plan and for a purpose. So don't forget that. When the time gets tough, when the pressure gets hard, God knows it. He's in control of all of that. It is not outside of him, so be aware of that. We're going to read about both of these churches. The first one is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The second church is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So regarding the church in Thyatira, the Bible says the following. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but her teaching, by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffering intensely. Nevertheless, Unless they repent of their ways, of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what, and except to hold on except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's pretty much the longest letter to a church, and it has some heavy content. However, we'll get into a little bit of a better understanding of the church of Thyatira in a moment. Let's go on to read about the church in Philadelphia, starting in chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. These are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, that you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have come, or since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth." Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And on a week-by-week basis, I do give you the breakdown of what that looks like. It's all, all of these letters have kind of a standard way of being written, and it starts with an address to the church and their angel. It shows how Jesus is being depicted. It goes on to the I know statements that Jesus is trying to get up close and personal about some things um, that they are, are uh, to be praised for. But then there is the kind of idea of, I have this against you. Now, tonight, that is only for one church, not for both of them. And then you normally have the breakdown of, um, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. However, tonight, we're making a little bit of a flip with that. Normally, we hear the, what's called the eschatological promise, so the promise that comes in the end or in the beginning of Jesus' new kingdom in the future. But... Tonight, we make a little bit of a switch, and there's a reason for that switch. So normally, you would hear the promise, and then you would hear, um, or you would hear first, I'm sorry, to him who has an ear, let him hear, and then you would get the promise. But tonight, they switch. And from this point forward in Revelation, you hear uh, the promise, and then to him who has an ear. So for some reason, first they need the promise before they're being told to listen. So the promise is essential for them. So we'll get into that in a moment. Let's look at the churches that this is written to. And I'm just going to do some quick facts. For those that are here for the first time and you have one of these pamphlets, you'll see a breakdown of those facts that are just kind of written. Those facts help us gain a better understanding. Again, these are not imaginary places. This is not like reading C.S. Lewis's Narnia you know, that's a mythical place or a fantasy place. These are legitimate Christian churches, early churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, 
and they are real circumstances that are happening. And over the course of church history, like I said to you, they've kind of uh, taken these texts and kind of overread a lot of meaning and over-spiritualized them and over um, they symbolize them. And these particular churches, they are not symbolic. They are realistic. And the message that is being spoken to them by Jesus through the Spirit is a very legitimate message to what they're going through. And we don't want to bypass that. And again, just like any other lesson from history, we can learn from that. We don't have to over-spiritualize it. We don't have to over-symbolize it to learn from it. I think that the message is clear-cut once we get into the kind of culture and history of the people. So the first church regarding its history is the Church of Thyatira. That's the one that got the long letter. And in their culture, what was predominant was that the god Apollo was worshipped. Now, Apollo is the sun god, but he is the god. I mean, the, even though they love Zeus, they're really infatuated with Apollo at this point because he is the sun god, and they absolutely love this. I mean, they weave it into their architecture. They weave it into their daily life. They weave it into their development, and they also weave it into the worship of the emperor. So this is very important to them. So everywhere you go in Thyatira, everything is based mainly around Apollo, and they have a little bit of Artemis or uh, Diana worship mixed into that. Now, the worship of Apollo will be important to know as we move further with tonight. The other thing that was notable about Thyatira was, if you know a little bit about the Bible and the book of Acts, you'll know that the Apostle Paul had a convert in Thyatira, and her name was Lydia, and Lydia was a cloth dyer. So Lydia, she dyed these beautiful cloths, and they were known as Thyatira red. So there was a mineral compound that could be found in Thyatira that was used for the dyeing of garments, and these were considered precious because they were kind of like reds and purples, and just so you know, in the ancient world, they really didn't differentiate between red and purple. They were all kind of the same color to them. They didn't make the distinction that you and I make. So this Thyatira red, I mean, this was the color that you wanted to have. And you could find it anywhere in that town, and it was also exported throughout the Roman Empire, especially for the emperor and those who were part of the Senate and those who were uh, high in status within society. They were also known for their metalwork, especially in the area of bronze metalwork. Now, that will come in handy for us to know as well. Now, the cloth dyeing industry, the metal industry, and they had many other industries in this particular town, um, they were mainly centered around industrious guilds. And these guilds were woven into their daily life. It was kind of like, if you're not part of a guild or a craft, you really don't have any place in this particular society. This, this town of Thyatira really isn't like a big booming town. So the only claim to fame that you have is where you work. That's what identifies the people that live here. However, all of these guilds were interwoven with the worship of the god Apollo. And every one of these guilds held something almost like the equivalent of a company party. And these parties took place in the temples of worship to Apollo. And oftentimes at these parties, it led to drunkenness, also where people were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And as the evening progressed, they got into, 
again, that word that we say, and it's a common Bible word, but they constantly say sexual immorality, and there's all different variants and types. I will not get into that for the sake of some of the audience tonight, but in any case, let's just say it was really bad. Because of these particular guilds and their parties and the associations with Apollo, the Christians living in Thyatira had to quit their jobs uh, because going to the company party was really not an option for them. They really couldn't be a Christian and go to the company party. That's how bad these parties were. However, if they did not attend the party, they were accused of not honoring the god Apollo. And so then the Romans, or the, pretty much the Thyatirans that were there, they ostracized them and kind of pushed them out and said, you are guilty of atheism. Now, atheism in the Roman Empire had to do with when you did not acknowledge the gods, plural, and you did not acknowledge the emperor as God, you were considered an atheist. So the early Christians were called atheists by these people, and they were kicked out of daily life and society. Another thing that's interesting, just based off of the verbiage and the wording that is used here is, in Thyatira, they had a particular coin that was found. And this coin had the picture of a warrior on it who was holding an axe. And with this warrior's axe, it was giving the notion that he was about to destroy his enemies. So that's also very important to understand when we get that picture of Jesus, which I'll cover in a moment. The other historical facts that we want to cover are dealing with the Church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was at one point a very prosperous city, and it was known by a different name. But at one point, it experienced a shift in its name after a major earthquake happened, and it devastated the city completely. The people of Philadelphia were exonerated from paying a tax to the Roman Empire, but even in that short amount of time that they did not have to pay tax, they still could not recover from the economic decline that they went through. And so that hardship caused them to be quite embittered. It seemed as if the emperor had forgotten about them and betrayed them. Another thing that they did, and this was during the reign of Domitian, and if you follow these studies, whether in person or online, you've come to learn that Domitian was even worse than the emperor Nero. Uh, Domitian makes Nero look like a good guy. And so Domitian, what he had done to the people of Philadelphia is they were known for their wonderful wine vineyards. It was an absolutely wonderful wine. And so these vineyards were more well-known than the Roman vineyards at the heart of the Roman Empire. And so Domitian wanted to eliminate the competition and give the business to his crony friends back in Rome. And so what he decided to do was completely destroy the vineyards of Philadelphia. And so the whole industry that their life was based off of was completely eradicated. Now, you can imagine, not only do they feel betrayed, they also feel embittered. So it's quite a shaky little society in and of itself. As I said, the people of Philadelphia felt betrayed. However, the Christians that were in Philadelphia felt betrayed as well. Just like Rome didn't help the people of Philadelphia, the Jewish community of Philadelphia also did not help these young and early Jewish Christians, and we'll get into that in a moment. So those are little fun facts to know about these things as we unlock the text more and more. The second thing that we like to kind of hone in on is 
How is Jesus depicted, and how does it not only help us understand these churches, but how does it help you and I understand who Jesus is, and how does it paint a broader picture of the book of Revelation? And so to the church of Thyatira, it says this, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And I think this is absolutely beautiful. See, Jesus is referred to here in the text as the Son of God, which is something that was all used quite often in the Old Testament. Son of God or Son of Man, actually, to be more specific. And so in that, this idea of Son of God And John refers to Jesus as the Son of God. This same title, Son of God, is the same title that's used for Apollo, but yet now they're using it for Jesus instead. So that's quite a little jab, again, toward their false religion and their ideologies. And so Jesus is depicted as the Son of Man. And what I like about this is not only do you have that comparison to Jesus being better than Apollo, but you have this beautiful fulfillment of the Old Testament. Because the book of Daniel is a book that is similar to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Daniel, you see someone who is referred to as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a synonymous title with the title Son of God. And Jesus, in the New Testament, they use both Son of Man, Son of God. And so we get this picture of Jesus being painted that is a similar picture to what we see in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to look it up in Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 6, we see the following. And this is a description of the man who is deemed the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days or God the Father. And so it says this description, it says, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. I don't know about you, but this language of the Son of Man is exactly the same language that is being used to describe Jesus, who is the Son of God. And so in that, the prophecy that Daniel has and what Daniel sees, John is trying to say under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus is the one that was promised. So we see a lot of links with Daniel and Revelation happening simultaneously. Another keen thing of interest is, like I said, Thyatira was known for its metalworking, and they were especially skilled in the working of bronze. So I don't know about you, but I love seeing craftsmen and craftspeople at work. If someone is sewing or if someone is making something out of metal, I thoroughly enjoy seeing those processes. My own family was in the jewelry industry, so I love seeing metals be kind of uh, melted and then poured and then shaped and then painted and stones or different things being put into them. I think that process is such an invigorating process. So anyone living in Thyatira would have gone by one of these bronze metal shops. And there, what they would have seen and felt was the burning flames of fire. And they would have seen that bronze glowing inside the fire as it was molded. But instead of them passing a shop that maybe they'll never be able to work at, or passing a shop that they'll never be able to work at, even though they were skilled in that because of Jesus, their very Jesus, the one they love, he is portrayed as the one with eyes like burning fire. And his skin is glowing like bronze. And I love that comparison. 
Now to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is also shown in another way. And Jesus is shown here in the following words. It says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so here you have this dynamic playing out in Philadelphia. The Christians there are not allowed to come into the synagogues. They're being closed out. The doors of the synagogues are literally being shut. The doors are being locked, and people have to knock in order to get in. And if they knock and they realize this person is one of the Jews, but these are one of the Jewish people that follow Jesus, they do not unlock the door to let them in. Another practice that they did was they had kind of like a membership role. And what they would do was they would blot their names out of the membership role so that if someone, if they said, no, but I'm part of this synagogue, when they went to look them up, they couldn't find them. And so all of these things were also done on purpose, and that is why Jesus paints this picture of himself as being the one who is holy and true, the one who does not betray. He is also the one who holds a key that is the most important key, and that's the key of David. That key unlocks any door. And so that's what's being shown here, and then also Jesus being the one who can open and shut any door. So even though they're being locked out of the synagogue, they're kind of being told to rest assured, Jesus is the one who lets them into other places, and those places we'll hear about in a moment. Jesus is seen in, in this terminology as the major domo, and in the ancient world, the major domo, he was the person of the highest position within a royal household, and they were able to let people into the kingdom or not let them in. And so Jesus is the one who determines who gets to come in and who doesn't. So I think that that's an important lesson for them. Like I said, in both texts, we see the strong prophetic imagery that is associated with the Messiah being fulfilled in Jesus. So like I said, the one that is like burnished bronze, but again, the words that we see, the one who is holy and true, who holds the king of David, John is shouting by the power of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus not only is your Messiah and your Savior, he is the one that was promised from the Old Testament. That's still him. He's still here. And so Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 shows us the following. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So just like the book of Daniel shows us this ultimate picture of the authority of Jesus, John here in Revelation, under the leading of the Spirit, writing to the church of Philadelphia, writing to the church of Thyatira, wants to show them, I don't know about you guys, but just as much as your Jesus was fully human, I want you to realize he is fully God. Don't mess with him. Yeah? He is a force to be reckoned with. And so that's something that we want to kind of print in our brains and in our hearts. The next thing that's mentioned are the I know statements. And these are the good things they did. To the church of Thyatira, he writes and he says to them, I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service, and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. 
Jesus knows their deeds, or as we would better understand them, we would say the word works. He knows their works of faith. I want to be specific about the works of faith. Why? Because the text itself shows us what these works are. And so let's kind of get a look at each one of them. The first one is the work of love. John, the apostle, loves writing about love, and that is that Greek word agape, which is the love of God. And John has this awesome understanding of the love of God. He sees Jesus as the representation of God's love in physical form. He sees Christians being united together um, and working together as being the ultimate expression of God's love. And as a true Christian witness, John appeals to the churches over and over again, love one another, walk in love, talk in love, operate in love, serve in love. And so love, 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 love. You see it all over the place with John. And again, he mentions it here, that the church in Thyatira, even though they're about to get a warning in the next sentence, he is telling them, you are doing good. You're doing even better because the church in Ephesus was warned, return back to the things you did at first, return back to your first love, as where the church at Thyatira is excelling in love. So they're getting their love on, they're practicing what they preach, and they're seeing that happen around them. This love not only is uniting them to one another, but this love is uniting them to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is the ultimate expression of Christian love. The next thing that they are told that they are excelling in is faith, and that is a lovely word, pistis. When we say faith, faith for us can almost be like wishful thinking, but the biblical word faith is the ultimate and extreme trust and obedience that we have to the word of God, knowing if he said it, he will do it. He's going to do it. And so these believers in Thyatira were people of the word. If God said it, they practiced it. If God said it, they believed it, and they were willing to endure, and they were willing to be a witness. And so they get that commendation of being a good witness. And we know that that word is only used two times in the New Testament. The good witness is Jesus, who offers his life unto death. And the other good witness we just learned about a few weeks ago, that is Antipas, who gave his life in the fires of that little fiery furnace bull. So he says to the church in Thyatira, you guys are faithful. You're willing to endure even to the point of risking your lives for Jesus. The other thing that he encourages them in is their service, the diaconia. And these are their loving acts of service to one another, as well as their service in something called the prophetic ministry. These people were genuinely people who heard the voice of God. And that is kind of a sharp comparison They are being called faithful servants, but yet on the other hand, we have someone in the church who's not being too good of a servant and being a false prophet. And so he is at first encouraging the people who are upholding the word of God. Any true prophet, anyone with a true prophetic gifting will always uphold the word of God above their own personal revelation. Meaning, if you have a prophet that tries to say something and you cannot find it in the Bible, you can't back it with the scripture, they are not a true prophet. I don't care who they are. The Bible also shows us even if an angel appears to them, giving them another gospel, we are not supposed to believe them. The word of God is always central. So that's something that's very important here. The last thing that they are commended for is their patience. And so I looked that up. I wanted to see exactly what patience are we talking about here. So in the Greek language, that is that word, it's a word, wu palm, 
Wupa'ani. Wupa'ani. It sounds like uh, Hawaiian to me. And so this specific word in the New Testament is a characteristic of a believer who has not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to the faith and their piety by even the greatest of trials or suffering. So these are people that are kind of like hardcore Christians, that no matter what comes their way, they are determined to hold on to Jesus no matter what. Well, I think that those are lovely descriptions. We're going to see a little bit about the next church, the church in Philadelphia. He says to them, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I already illustrated for you how these early Christians, these Jewish Christians, were treated by the Jews that were in the synagogue, or at least some of the Jewish leaders in the synagogue. However, there's another important point that I'd like to illustrate because I don't want to repeat a point that I already made. In this month at the church, we are learning about the life of Joseph, the one who had a dream. And I think that there's a unique statement in here. He says to them, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And so here we see a comparison to the life of Joseph, whose brothers at first denied him. They sold him as a slave, they betrayed him and rejected him, but later on a second time, they end up seeing him and realizing it's him when he is serving under Pharaoh in Egypt and he is actually able to save their lives and their families' lives by offering them food in a famine. And they literally fulfill his dream by bowing down to him. And so these people are told, just like Joseph was betrayed, the very people who have betrayed you, I will force them to recognize that you are true believers and they will come and they will bow at your feet. Isn't that interesting? And yet we see another fulfillment happen in there that I think is even better. See, Jesus himself also is represented in the life of Joseph. Jesus was also first rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. Yet when Jesus comes again, and Jesus will literally and physically return again, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people that are living in modern-day Israel, will actually see Jesus physically return. And the Bible shows us in the Old and New Testament, they will look on the one that they have pierced, and they will grieve for him, and they will fall at his feet and worship him. So not only was this promise fulfilled in the life of Joseph, but it's being promised to the church in Philadelphia, and ultimately we will see it in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. I think these comparisons are absolutely wonderful. Don't you? The next thing that we learn is, but I have this against you. Now to the church of Philadelphia there is no warning, but to the church of Thyatira there is quite a warning, so I would say, fasten your seatbelts. See, the church of Thyatira is told that they are being led astray by a woman that they're referring to as Jezebel. Now, that is not her real name. It's just that she has kind of an attitude like a woman that is found in the Old Testament. And so the church here is being warned that not only is Jezebel being a false prophetess, but the people that follow her are also spreading false doctrines through the church. 
And the false message that they are saying to the Christians in Thyatira is, you cannot mix Jesus and the temple of Apollo. That's the message that the church is saying. But these false prophets are saying, no, no, you can mix them. You can go to the company party, you can drink a little bit, you can flirt a little bit with people, you can have a good time, and when it gets a little bit raunchy, maybe then you want to go home. And you can still come to church on Sunday. You can go to the party on Saturday night, you can get a little bit drunk, but as long as you show up on Sunday, it's all good, it's, it's washed in the blood. And so that was kind of the pervading message. And so there you see that Jesus warns this particular church and he says, no, 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 no. Just like in the Old Testament, how Jezebel, who was, she was a Phoenician woman, so she was a woman from a completely different people. She was married into uh, Israel by the Jewish king Ahab. And Jezebel, what she brought into Israel was the worship of false gods, Baal and Ashereth. And I don't know if you know any history on Baal or Ashereth, but these particular, this god and this goddess, they, they are extremely sexualized beings, and everything around them just kind of centers around those things. Even the very statues of worship to them are very erotic kind of statues. When I was living in Amsterdam, I was uh, in pretty much the city center. Part of the city is the red light district. So even from the outskirts of the city, they have erotic imagery and statues and everything everywhere. I mean, it's just absolutely repulsive, but that's the norm there. There are also other cities or other things in the world where that is just considered the norm and people do that. Well, this is what it was like for these Christians. This is what it was like for these Jewish people. They were being put in situations where unbiblical sexuality, sinful sexuality, to be more specific, was blatantly being shoved in their face. It wasn't like, ooh, by accident I stumbled upon it. No, you had to directly walk there. You had to directly partake in it. And so Jezebel not only introduced that into Israel, but her husband Ahab helped her spread the worship of false gods throughout the whole kingdom. And so just like Ahab had helped Jezebel spread that message, well, this Jezebel that is pretty much in the church of Thyatira, she's not a woman from the outside. She is a woman that is inside the church. Her followers are causing the other believers to believe in their teaching. And so a warning comes to them. And the warning that goes out to them is the following. And the warning is pretty much that they need to repent. Because if they don't repent, not only will Jezebel get sick and suffer, but the people that follow her are going to get sick and suffer. And the very children of Jezebel, meaning whoever listens to her teaching and follows it, those people will most likely die. That's how bad her teaching is. And so because of that, a strict warning comes out. But what the Bible is trying to illustrate to us is something very clear, that what Jesus is really driving home here is that just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, she had the opportunity to repent, but she didn't want to. And so she fell to her punishment. This Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament, she fell out of a window. She was dressed immaculately. She falls to the ground. She's trampled by horses and eaten by dogs. I don't know about you, but that's quite a way to die. I think that's nuts. But then this Jezebel in the New Testament, she is also offered the opportunity to repent. See, oftentimes when we look at the judgments of God, we don't want to hear that sometimes. Like we look at the God of the Bible and it's everything is grace, 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 love, love, love. And a lot of pastors, everything, grace, love, heaven. Well, there's a hell. 
Yeah, there is a second death. There is punishment. And there is a God, even of the New Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament has not changed. He rewards those who are faithful. He forgives those who repent, but he punishes those who do not. And so the theology of justice is something that we really have to be aware of. Just as much as we believe in a God of love, we also believe in a God of justice. Yeah, he rewards and he punishes. And he mentions that very explicitly here. And so when people hear that, they're like, oh, the God of the Bible, this and that, is almost like he's the big party pooper. I explain it like this. The God of the Bible loves you. It's just like a navigation system in your car. Drive straight, drive straight, take a right, take a left, take a right. And then we get this idea that we know better. So then we start going our own way. And then it says, please turn around, please make a U-turn, please make a U-turn. And we're not listening. And then all of a sudden, the signs start saying cliff and 300 feet, cliff and 150 feet, cliff and 50 feet. And then our car goes over the edge of the cliff. Who's at fault? Is it the navigation system? Is it the signs along the side of the road? Is it the cliff's fault for being there? You answer that for me, please. Give me the answer. Whose fault is it? It's our fault, the person who's driving. And so the Bible makes that point clear. The only person who is responsible for their sin is the person committing the sin. And the punishment that goes along with that sin is correct. God is not mean for doing it. He constantly calls out and he asks us to repent. And so the greatest sin that Jezebel and her followers are guilty of is not necessarily, it is to some degree, it is the sexual immorality, it is the spreading of false teachings, but worse than that, it is the stubbornness and the unwillingness to want to repent. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And so the leaders of this particular church are held accountable. They are not considered guilty for following Jezebel, but what they are guilty of is tolerating Jezebel and her followers. And so in this church in Thyatira, there are two moves happening at once. One is an uphill trajectory of the believers who are doing better works, who are loving and serving and persevering and being patient and being faithful. But then there's another downhill trajectory, and those are the people that are assigning themselves with the teachings of Jezebel so that they can merge into their society, so they don't have to feel pressure all around them, and that they can just do what everyone else does and get to keep their jobs and worship Jesus too. But it's not allowed. It's Jesus or your job. It's Jesus or the company party. And so those are hard decisions that need to be made. The following warning is given. It says to the one who has ears, he must pay attention to what the Spirit says. So what exactly is the Spirit saying in this? And the Spirit of God in both of these texts, because you'll read it two different times, the Spirit of God is encouraging these believers, hold on to Christ no matter what. Whether the pressure is social pressure, whether the pressure is actual persecution, Hold on to Jesus and do not let go of him. Because by holding on, what you are doing is you are guaranteeing his promise and his blessing in your life. And that is why the text is kind of switched around here. That is why it first says, to him who has an ear, because the Spirit wants to make clear, you are not going to get the reward unless you hold on. You've got to hold on no matter what. You've got to stay faithful no matter what. 
And so because of that, they are eventually promised very wonderful things. Let's look at the promise to the church of Thyatira, and I have to do that quickly for the sake of time, and to the one in Philadelphia. It says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I also give you that one, I also give you that one the morning star. The believers here are promised two things. The first thing that they are promised is authority. Just like Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, including the one named here in Psalm 2, 8 through 9, these believers are being promised that they will also be with Jesus in his mission as the Messiah so that they will rule and reign with him in his millennial kingdom. So he's giving them an awesome responsibility. This rule is the great rule of the shepherd king, which mixes the imagery of care, but also the imagery of actively correcting and at time breaking. So just like, you know, oftentimes I love it, you know, just being a pastor. You know, Jesus, he was the good shepherd. And then when they think of a pastor of a church, they think of someone who only tells them what they want to hear. They think of someone who constantly is kind of like, oh, you poor being, you poor thing. But what they don't understand is the role of a shepherd, even in biblical times, and Jesus as the shepherd, Jesus here, when he's painting a picture of himself as a shepherd, he is saying he has a staff that is made of iron. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to get hit with an iron staff to be knocked into place. And it also says he has the power to break vessels of clay. And so the image that we need to understand is Jesus is full of God's righteous indignation. When we look at Jesus, even when he cleanses the temple, he is no joke. He turns over the money tables. He whips the animals and drives them out of the area that was known as the court of the Gentiles because they're disrupting the worship of people. And so because of that, Jesus isn't just like, oh, these poor tax collectors, they're just doing their job. You know, they're just trying to make everything work out for the foreigners that are coming. Oh, for the people that are selling sheep and goats here, they're just doing it for the foreigners that need to be here. Jesus didn't go around making excuses for everyone. Jesus spoke to the issue. Jesus dealt with matters. He was not a pansy, okay? We believe sometimes in Christians and pansy leadership. I don't. I believe in leadership as being men and women of God who stand up and they call an ace an ace. They call a Jezebel a Jezebel. And they do that because they love the flock. They want to protect the body from anything. And so that is the image that is being painted for this church. If you are willing to stand up to that Jezebel, you will be just like Jesus, and you will share in his messianic kingdom, and you will rule and reign with him. Man, these people are promised something great. And it's meant for those that are willing to hold on and to act like Jesus acts. Like I said, in this text, we're presented with the theology of justice. Jesus is loving and kind, but do not test his love or his kindness by blatantly sinning or allowing sin to happen. Did we hear that one? Good. Jesus is also shown here as the morning star. In the ancient world, Venus was considered the morning star. They called it a star. We know it. It's a planet. 
Venus was the first planet to appear in the morning. So before the sun, or as the sun was coming up and they could see the body of the sun, they could see that bluish hue of Venus in the distance. And so they associated the appearance of Venus in the sky with almost like the appearance of a deity or a god or a goddess. And eventually they attributed that to the worship of the emperor. So in this particular text, and we see in another place in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is called the bright and morning star. And so these early Christians are promised Jesus, the bright and morning star. They can't worship the emperor. They can't play in his games and go to his feast. And they can't worship Apollo. But what they can do is devote their lives completely to Jesus. And Jesus is willing to give himself completely to them. It reminds me of a hymn that I used to sing, Amazing Love, by John Wesley, and I love this particular line. It says, Bold I approach the eternal throne to take the prize, Christ my own. I don't know about you, but when other people talk about heaven, I've heard friends say, I can't wait to live there. I can't wait to live in my mansion and walk on the streets of gold and see the angels and see relatives that I've known to go on and be with Jesus. And it's not that I wouldn't want any of that stuff, but in all honesty, it doesn't interest me. What really interests me is that I get to see Christ. He is mine and I am his. And so the promise of that bright morning star, he is mine and I am his, that's all I need. That's more than enough for me. So I think that that's wonderful. There's a little bit more on that. I'll have to explain it at another time. And then in closing, the Church of Philadelphia. The promise to them, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. This idea of being a pillar is obviously something wonderful because these early believers were banished, of course, from the synagogues, which were held up by pillars. And on ancient pillars, inscriptions of important people or names were written. Just like when you walk into this very gymnasium, one of the names, this building, this side of the building is dedicated to the pastor who started this church, Pastor Heidel. Uh, but the Bible shows us in heaven that our names will be inscripted on pillars. That will be considered foundational people and important people. So just like buildings have their pillars which uphold them and have important inscriptions on them dedicated to people, so you who overcome in the future kingdom of God, you will have a place of significance and honor. That's beautiful too. Additionally, these believers who were excluded from the synagogue of Satan, because that's what they were called, are now considered themselves immovable and permanent fixtures in God's eternal heavenly temple. Man, you got to love this book. And just like the city of Philadelphia went through a name change, these believers would take on a new name, a new identity, and a new city whose complete association is linked to God as expressed through the revelation of Jesus. You may have been or felt betrayed by others, but this Jesus who is holy and true, he will never fail you. He will always accept you. And he will never Head to BethelCC.org to stay up to date with everything that's going on at Bethel Christian Church.